1: Hello, everyone. I am C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction. Today I'm interviewing Tiffany Rice, the author of The Nightmark. Historians, historical novelists, and readers of historical fiction love to imagine going back into the past. In a sense, that's what historical fiction is, a kind of time travel. But those of us who write it, and no doubt read it, always wonder if we got it right. In this novel set along the South Carolina coast, Faye Barlow has a chance to experience the past firsthand. When we first meet her, though, she has a different kind of time travel on her mind. Fay closed her eyes and thought of Casablanca. Easy to do, since she'd been watching it earlier that day. She'd also watched the week before and the month before that. In the past three years, she'd watched it about ten times. Maybe more. But ten is all she would admit to if asked. And her husband had asked when he'd come home from work and found her watching it. Again? Hagen said. It's a classic, was all Faye had said. And because Hagen knew better, he hadn't said anything else. Faye closed her eyes and thought of Casablanca, because Hagen was kissing the back of her neck. Friday night, nine o'clock, the one hour of the week she usually made the effort to show up for her marriage. But she hadn't felt well all day, tired, aching, and all she wanted to do was close her eyes and go to sleep. Since she couldn't sleep, she dreamed of Rick and Ilse and Morocco, while Hagen did his best to pretend theirs was a real marriage. Faye knew better by now. She'd been worried about Rick for three years. Had Rick ever found someone else to love? Or if he made a monk of himself, living in celibate devotion to Ilsa for the rest of his life? Or maybe he died shortly after Ilsa got on that plane, killed by fascists or Nazis on his way to Brazzaville with Louis. Fay hoped he died. Better that than to live for decades still in love with Ilsa, still in love with a woman he could never have again. Whoever first said it was better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all, clearly had never loved or never lost. And now, please join me in welcoming Tiffany Rice.
0: Hi, Tiffany. I look forward to talking with you today. Oh, thanks for having me here, Carolyn. I'm really excited to be on the podcast. Um, We're
1: delighted to have you. Uh, You have a long list of books that cover quite a wide range, from uh, very steamy romances to The Bourbon Thief* which is a family saga with elements of mystery and suspense. So tell us about your writing career before the night, Mark.
0: Uh, well, I write for Mira Books, which is the mainstream fiction imprint of Harlequin. And Harlequin, as we know, is, is synonymous with romance. Um, so my my first book series is uh, sort of a, an erotic, steamy soap opera called The Original Sinners. Um, and then uh, when that series Ended after eight books, which was always the plan—a good, uh, um, uh, nice round, fat number, eight books. Uh, then uh, it was time to write something different. I had been—I'd written a, a romance, a gothic romance called *The Headmaster*, which is a classic gothic, um, you know, spooky boarding school. Um, maybe ghosts, maybe not ghosts, and it was so much fun to just dive into. Um, the gothic elements of a story that was uh, set in the past um, that I wanted to do it again. Uh, So I wrote a book called The Bourbon Thief, which is southern gothic. I live in Kentucky and I do a lot of a lot of traveling in the south Um, and uh, places like coastal South Carolina are are very much uh, have one foot in the past and one foot in the present. So The Bourbon Thief was set partly in Kentucky and partly um, on an island on the uh, South Carolina coast. And I loved the writing the mythology for this island. There are a lot of tiny islands um on the South Carolina coast, and some of them are private islands. Uh, one is, I think, it's called something like Monkey Island, where like research monkeys only live. So it's it's a really weird place that that many people are familiar with. Um, a nice spooky place with an interesting history. So I wanted to go back to that island that was in the Bourbon Thief, uh, which led me to uh, wanting to write the Nightmark because we are all quite familiar with lighthouses being on uh, coastal islands. Um, so they, they tied well together. So the Nightmark came after the Bourbon Thief, and they're, although they're both standalones, they have some connections to each other.
1: Ah, so that's interesting. So that answers my next question, which is how you got to the Nightmark. Um, is there something in particular about lighthouses that appeals to you?
0: I've always loved them. They're, they're When you're near one, you can't stop looking at them. Um, I lived briefly in Oregon, so going from Kentucky to Oregon, where there were mountains in the distance, we could see Mount Hood and sometimes Mount St. Helens. When you're when you're driving, you just can't stop looking at them. You just keep glancing into the distance. And lighthouses are the same way. If there's one anywhere near you, that's where your eye is always drawn. Um, and and they're so symbolic of the past because we don't really need them anymore. We have GPS and and uh, buoys and the sort of thing that that uh, keeps us from from our ships from getting lost and into wrecks. But um, they were these. These monuments of, of a, uh, a past, uh, a, a past that's, that's romantic in theory, maybe not as romantic in, in reality. Um, but what happened was uh, specifically was my husband and I were on vacation in Savannah, Georgia, and we heard the story. We were on one of those two dollar two dollar tours of town, and we heard the story of Florence Martis, who's a local legend in Savannah. Uh, she was the lighthouse, Cockspur Islands uh, lighthouse. keepers sister. So she kept house for her brother who was the lighthouse keeper. And the local legend is that she fell in love with a sailor, who shipped out this was very early 20th century who shipped out and she started to wait for him to come back they were engaged she was waiting for her fiance to come back and claim her and so she would start to um, she started to greet every ship that came into the port of Savannah uh, by waving like a white flag by day and and, uh, a lantern by night and she always had her little dog with her Um, and she became the symbol of hospitality as she waited for her her fiance to come back to her and the the sad thing is he never returned Um, so but she did this all her life until she retired, and, and now there's a statue of her, and she's a symbol of hospitality, uh, southern hospitality. But when my husband and I heard this story, Andrew's also a writer. Um, we kind of looked at each other and went, oh, she made him up. She totally made him up. She didn't want to get married for whatever reason, so she invented a fake fiancé like the Canadian girlfriend, the sort of sort of beard fiancé, so she wouldn't have to get married for whatever reason. Because this is how the writer brain works. You're always looking for plot twists. Uh, so that idea stuck with me and uh, ended up becoming uh, the Nightmark, a woman who claims to have a fiancé who doesn't exist.
1: That's great. So I do see the, the connections there to the story and I won't go into them too much because it really becomes clear towards the end of the story. We, we want people to read the book and find out. Uh, but so, so you started with this story and how do you get to uh, your main character, Faye? Did she, when did she come into the story?
0: Um, she was, she was the first person I thought of for this story other than, of course, a lighthouse keeper. Um, if you're going to travel back in time and spend time with a lighthouse keeper, you have to have him. Uh, but, uh, it, it takes a, an unusual person in unusual circumstances who goes into the past and wants to stay there. I think 99.9% of us would enjoy our trip into the past, but we would not want to stay in a time before antibiotics and in a time before women's liberation, especially women, um, in a a time where there was uh, rampant segregation. So for my character of Faye, I had to basically make her life Miserable in the present, so it 's much more understandable why she is so drawn to this this uh, uh, past world where she has to give up so many so many modern conveniences but find something in the past that 's not what she has in the present um, so it, it it was very quick. Um, idea that that she would be a widow who was uh, still grieving for her husband. Um, I started writing the nightmark right after I got married, so in a way, it's sort of a uh, a tribute to happy marriage um, and how much joy that can bring to your life when you're happily married, like I am. Uh, but now. Once you are happily married, losing your spouse becomes one of your biggest fears. I try not to dwell on sort of things like you know one of these days I know my cat will die. I might outlive my husband. These are the the things that keep me up at night that I try not to dwell on. But while I was writing the night market, every time Faye thinks about her husband Will who died a few years earlier, I just cried and cried. I wanted to give her so I wanted to give her happiness so badly because I felt her pain so much. Uh, but yeah, that's where that's where she came from. Was like I, I have to have a very special type of character who it makes sense uh, that she would be okay giving up her, her iPhone and central air conditioning
1: yeah no um, that's great and she and as you say I mean you you have to make her miserable at the beginning so that she can be happy by the end but she so she's actually even though she's mourning her first husband Will she's actually remarried when we met her to um, Hagen and that's not going so well can you tell us about that part of, of the setup?
0: Uh yeah, I, I I worry a lot about um not just women but I I was in student loan debt for a very very long time. Luckily, my my books took off enough to get out of student loan debt. But it was a a a chain around my neck for years, and I have never forgotten. There were moments where I was like, I would marry a total stranger to get out of student loan debt. If a man promised to keep me to get me out of student loan debt, I would marry him. and I would be a very good wife to him for the rest of my days. So luckily, it didn't come to that. But uh, it it made sense to me that a woman who was in such dire financial uh, straits as Faye would would latch on to someone who was this who was offering her this lifeboat um this life preserver uh when you're drowning you you cling to the first thing that's thrown your way which was this this um Guy Hagen who was her husband's best friend um and and it was uh uh it made sense at the time Um, but of course a a marriage that starts out that way is probably not going to, uh, not going to be particularly successful. Um, but I don't like, I don't like writing villains, which I, I was glad Hagen didn't turn into a villain. Um, he's just not, you know, they're just an incompatible married couple. Um, as Faye says to one of the other characters in the book, her, her late husband, Will loved her so much, so much more than she'd ever been used to being loved. And it's very hard to. Go back to being loved the normal amount. Uh, when you are loved more than you feel like you deserve, when you are when you're spoiled, who's spoiled by how happy she was. So it's it's very hard to go back to to a much more uh, uh, normal way of doing things.
1: Yeah, I really had the impression. I mean, Hagen is not a bad guy in any way. I mean, it's but his his main flaw, as far as I could tell, was that he wasn't will.
0: Yes. Yeah. And and it's unfair to ask someone to be uh, someone who they are not, which I think is the foundation of a lot of uh, marriages that, that end up failing. I have, uh, I have friends who, um, uh, of course, I have a bunch of writer friends, and many of them started writing after they got married. And so some spouses are like, oh, sure, that's something my wife is doing now. She's writing romance novels. That's great. It's extra income. It's fun. She likes it. And then some spouses are like, why are you doing this? This is not, this is not what I signed up for you going to writers conferences all the time, you being stuck in your office working until two in the morning. This is not the person I married. Um, so there is, a uh, you know, trying to turn your, your spouse into someone they aren't or expecting them to be someone they aren't or not allowing them to grow and change is, is a foundation of, of a lot of, uh, uh, divorces. <laughs> so, um, and I, I had been in those sorts of relationships before. So luckily, I did not get married to any of those people. Uh, but it, that feeling of, of being with somebody who wants me to be someone I'm not has, has always just stuck with me. Um, so I'm very sympathetic to Hagen, but also to Faye, who, who was, you know, doing her best in a, in a terrible situation.
1: Yes, no, I understand what you're saying. I mean, I didn't, when I started writing novels, I did it for fun and I had never, ever, ever intended to write fiction. And so my husband is one of those people. I mean, he's, he is fortunately one of the people who just kind of goes, okay, so my wife is writing novels now. <laughs> <laughs> But you know there is this little part where you just says, "Well, aren't you a historian?" And it's like, yes. Well, yes. You know, <laughs> so of course, I am that too. Right?
0: <laughs> but yeah, I'm, glad no. my, I'm glad Andrew and I met after we both had mm-hmm. had book deals, so this is how we know each other.
1: <laughs> but no, but but it is a certain kind of. I mean, fortunately, he's very accepting, but I could imagine that it could be very difficult if you had a spouse who was not. And for Faye and Hagen, which is where we started with this it's really i mean they're both grieving really they both lost this person and so they're kind of drawn together um in part f- by their affection for this other person and then of course in Faye's case as you mentioned it's in her you know she needs health insurance um she's pregnant and she 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 can't support herself and so she, there's that's another element in the marriage because it, when you're In financial stress, you know, that seems like the most important thing in the world. But then she marries Hagen, and that part of it is taken care of, and now she's got to deal with the next level, which is...
0: Oh, now we're married. Yeah, right. (laughs) (laughs) So now I have health
1: insurance.
0: (laughs) Yes. Who is this guy that I've hung out with? (laughs) Yeah, I I remember it was... um when was, would this have been? 12 years ago, dating someone without health insurance, and I had it, and I said, do you just want to get married? You need health insurance. You're going to the doctor all the time. You're going to go bankrupt if you don't get health insurance. Let's just, let's just get married so we can get on mine. He was like, "I'm not going to get married for health insurance," <laughs> but I know people who did. I know people who did. I have friends now; they were they were in love and living together, but they got married long before they had their official wedding because her health insurance dropped her, um, and she she had to marry her fiance, you know, a year before they had planned on it just just so she wouldn't go bankrupt with doctors' bills. Uh, so it is it is a real thing that happens.
1: I was also sort of mentally laughing when you were talking about it because, of course, um, marrying uh, it, you know the first person who asks you, even if it's a stranger, is a, a classic romance plot.:
0: It is, and I wanted to show that it's it's a lot harder in the real world than it is in books. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I read a, a wonderful Georgette Hayer novel that that uh, somebody said that doesn't sound like a romance at all. I forgot the the name of it, um, but uh, it, w- it was a marriage of convenience. Um, he, he was a good guy, but he, his family was in debt. So he had to marry a woman with money. He wasn't attracted to her. And at no point did they ever really fall in love in the book. They just became friends and decided to work well together. Uh, somebody said that's, that doesn't sound like a romance at all. It's like, no, but it it is much more likely how a marriage of convenience is going to work out in the real world. Um, it, it was much more realistic. Yeah. A civil contract. A I civil contract. contract. Yeah. It's yeah.
1: my, and my absolutely favorite hair. I mean, there were times when I didn't like it as much, but I, I'm a, a rabid Georgia hair fan. I oh, she's think so I, <laughs> her characterizations are just amazing. Um, and I think she wrote that one when she was somewhat depressed, actually in the sixties or something. Um, maybe she'd lost her husband or something. Something wasn't going right in her life. And she wrote this book, but it's so much more real. Than all of the others, it, it, as much as I love the characterization, I mean the the relationships themselves don't really seem like anything that that real people would engage in. But this one is is, I mean, everybody's very sympathetic, everybody's charming, and it just takes them a long time to get over these very real cultural factors that separate them.
0: Yes, yes, it's it's a fantastic book. So um, that that sort of stuck with me. This idea it was like, oh, how how would and it, let's let's throw away the the romance conventions where everybody falls in love by the end. What would what would a marriage of convenience look like if, if for example I had to be in one? It's like well you would kind of have to treat it like a business. It's like alright we're a team we're not in love with each other but we're co-workers so we're going to make this business of us work um, and in, in Faye and Hagen's case it, it didn't work out so much but um, there's no hard feelings which I really appreciated in, um, in a civil contract which is you know we're going to make this work we're going to find a way. <laughs> there's a lot of respect. Yeah, no, that's great. So um, so because of all of this that's going
1: on, I mean, because of uh, you know, Faye has not just lost her husband, but she's lost him in a very um, dramatic, unsuspected way because they were both very young and and it was very sudden. It was... Uh, uh, I don't know how much you want to say about the, the circumstances, but it's it's something that's co- totally unexpected. And then she's in this, this difficult relationship and she's... Drowning, basically. I mean, but long before she gets to the
0: island. Yes. She's, she's a metaphorically drowning. Before metaphorically she's literally drowning. drowning.
1: Right, yeah. exactly. Um so talk to us just a little bit about Will, uh who he is, who he was uh, before the story starts, because his characteristics do become important as we get into the, the larger part of the story.
0: Well, I'm a I'm a huge baseball fan and I wanted to write a baseball romance for a long time and it, it just never seemed to happen. What what uh Um, what was interesting about Will as I was writing was he didn't exist in the original concept, um, of the book. Uh, I knew, I knew Faye would be miserable for whatever reason in a bad marriage, Uh, but it wasn't until I was writing the, the rough draft and she's gotten divorced from Hagen. Um, this is, this is always already in like just the second chapter. It happens very quickly. Um, and Hagen calls her to check on her. And he says, uh, they're they're having this argument. They're sort of dancing around something as I'm writing it. And I was like, there has to be more here. There has to be more to this heartbreak of hers than just it was a bad marriage. And um, there's infertility issues that end up pushing them apart. There has to be more. There has to be some something deeper, a deeper level to her grief uh, that has made her You know, make this desperate. I'm getting out of this marriage right now. It's the middle of the night and I'm walking out. Um, And just out of nowhere, Hagen says, um, I, I was never going to be Will and it was unfair of you to ever want me to be him. And, and as soon as I wrote that, I was like, well, who's this guy? Who's this guy? I was like, is this an ex-boyfriend? What, who is he? And, and then uh, the, and I was like, oh, so she was married before, and her husband died, and she's still in love with him. Okay, that makes sense. Um, I knew Faye was miserable, but I wasn't sure why until she and Hagen got into their, their phone fight. Um, and then he came out of nowhere. And uh, earlier in the first draft, there was a line, something like, uh, uh, three balls is a strike and four balls or uh, yeah, three is a strike and and four balls is a walk. And so Faye had her fourth big traumatic incident with Hagen. And she, so the line was Faye walked. It's like, okay, so I have in the first chapter a baseball reference, why would uh, not to be sexist? I'm a woman who's a baseball fan, but why is a woman in the middle of fighting with like a guy who isn't like a computer programmer? Why is she making baseball references in her head? I was like, oh, well, we'll play baseball. Um, I love reading about the the backstories of, of actual baseball players. And so many of them are just these really interesting, oddly, wonderful, heroic, oddball men baseball players are. Now, some are some are terrible guys. They're, we know we know not all athletes are heroes, even if they're really good at their sport. But you've got like Javi Baez on on the Cubs, whose whose sister died her sister was his best friend. Um, and she died when she was like 21 or 22 years old. And he he plays every game in her honor and he's got a tattoo of her on her arm. And it's so sweet. And, and he almost couldn't play baseball anymore. He misses his sister so much. And, um, you know, so I read I read the backstories of baseball players. And they are all these sweet young guys who are just so happy to be there. Once they get to the majors, they're like, this is their childhood, their boy dream come true. Um, so I needed, I needed a character who it was believable, um, that a, they would be kind of young and poor. Um, somebody that Faye, who's a photographer would meet. She's does sports photography for local newspaper. Um, minor league players don't make any money. Um, and uh, this guy, who's this like symbol of uh, of like the good boy next door, who's just madly in love with his girlfriend, and then later his wife.
1: Yeah, no, uh, isn't it? I mean, for me, that's my favorite part of writing is when is the stuff that comes up that you never even knew was there. Nothing that was never in the outline that just kind of appeared. Yes,
0: it's <laughs> a wonderful story about Will. <laughs> Yeah, it was just they were fighting and, and he's you know, there's I've lost count of the amount of times I'm writing dialogue and a character will say something I hadn't planned on them to say. And then the book goes off in a completely different direction. Um, so then Will showed up and he shows up in the conversations that Faye has in her head with him. Um, as soon as as soon as she's out on her own, she feels like she can she can start mourning him because she got married so quickly after he died because she felt she had to that she never allowed herself. To mourn. So finally, when she's on her own, she can she can deal with her grief, and she deals with it by having these conversations with uh, with him in her head uh, that were a lot of fun to write and made me cry every time I wrote them. Every time, <laughs> every stressed. time Will shows up, that just the waterworks start. Um. So
1: so let's talk about Faye on her own. She leaves Hagen uh, because she is, as you mentioned, a photographer and she gets a photography gig. She hasn't been photographing while she's been with Hagen. And now that she's, this is really her first move away back into her old self, we could say.
0: Yes. Um, I have a friend who's a professional photographer and I, I'm, I admire, uh, that's that skill and the art of it. Um, it's something I wanted to do when I was younger and was terrible at. Uh, so, you know, when you are a writer, you can, you can create characters who are good at stuff that you're bad at, um, and live vicariously through them, but it's a lot of fun. Um, but, uh, For me, as a professional writer, I I tell people all the time, because writing is my full-time job, if I do not write, I do not eat. I have to write books. It is the only thing that pays the bills. And there's something terrifying about that and something incredibly liberating about it. You feel strong because you are paying your own bills with your art. And it's a wonderful, liberating feeling but also terrifying. So it's both. And and I wanted, I wanted Faye to have that experience again. She's out on her own and she knows I have to do this job because I have no, I have no husband to support me anymore. Um, and I, you know, my husband's a writer too. So he's in the same boat. If he doesn't write, he doesn't eat. Um, so it's not a hobby anymore. It's not something she can leave and walk away from. She has to do it. Um, and, uh, you know, I've, I've had people who say, how do you write when, when uh, there's chaos in the news and how do you write when you're tired and how do you keep showing up at your desk every day and writing every day? How do you write four books a year? It's like, I have to, it's my job. You show up to your job as a teacher or a plumber every day. It's just a job. So that's how you do it. Uh, so it was fun to get Faye back into that situation where she's taking care of herself financially and then is also uh, finds herself taking care of herself emotionally too.
1: So she, her photography takes her off on a tour of the South Carolina coast, um, islands in particular, camera in hand. And she ends up in, I assume it's pronounced Beaufort.
0: Uh, Beaufort, believe it or not. <laughs> now, somebody, tried to try, somebody who, is, who is not from South Carolina tried to correct me. I was like, she said, it's not pronounced like that. I was like, well, in North Carolina, it's Beaufort. But in South Carolina, it's Beaufort. There's two There's two B-E-A-U-F-O-R-T's, one in North Carolina and one in South Carolina. And I was like, I'm a Kentuckian. We got Versailles, Kentucky. Versailles, not Versailles, Versailles. So <laughs> I yes. understand this. this is a very <laughs> Southern thing to to butcher foreign <laughs> pronunciations. Oh, I'm not sure it's only Southern.
1: I mean, think of Idaho in Maine. it. <laughs> Or and don't get me started on the Scots. <laughs> oh my
0: we'll be here all day,
1: <laughs> right? So, okay. So she's in Beaufort, yes. and uh, she stays in house with Miss Lizzie uh, and a college boy named Ty. And for a moment there, things are looking up.
0: Yes, yes. It was it was fun to send her um, into a house because. Uh, Buford, South Carolina is is beautiful, and um, it's a small town, and it seems like every house is 150 years old. Um, and and I just I I always love books with uh, a fun, diverse cast of characters. Um, and this is this is South Carolina, so you're going to have like it's a large black population in coastal South Carolina. So it was fun to have this sort of pampered a white lady uh, living in a house that was mostly black people. And she's trying to be on her best behavior because she wants them to think well of her. Um, And, uh, uh, you know, she, she meets Ty, who's a, a student. She wants to go out on his boat and, and, uh, she has her first flirtation post divorce, which was a lot of fun to write. um, you, I hear the fun horror stories of people who who have to go on the dating scene after uh, after divorce uh, so I wanted to make it a little easy on faye it's it's not a love it's not a love connection but I let her have a little fun she needs it
1: <laughs> <laughs> I have to tell you the side of the dating scene will keep a lot of people married <laughs>
0: Yes, I, I told someone if I if I um, ever lost my husband, I've already got my convent picked out that I'm joining. I'm not I'm not doing the dating thing. I'm just going to go be a nun somewhere. <laughs> good idea. <laughs> so thank God for good marriages. That's all I yes. can say. <laughs> so, I tell my husband and my cats they're not allowed to die. Right
1: there you go. <laughs> so the first sign of change to come is that Faye encounters a stork. Uh, that seems to take a personal interest in her. Um, at least it shows up on several occasions. So this is obviously a, a kind of literary thing. What is the meaning of the stork?
0: Well, we we know that the stork is, uh, you know, for 100 years now, has been a, a symbol of a baby coming, um, which is kind of a, you know, um, a little bit, Faye takes it as, as rather ironic because she's struggled um, to get pregnant and stay pregnant and, and hasn't been, wants to have children and has infertility issues. Um, so she's a little little insulted and but intrigued by his presence. Um, but uh, I, I had an experience in college where uh, there was this one particular crow, this giant crow that seemed to show up anywhere I went on campus. Um, and he was bigger than the other ones and, and very, very vocal. And I was like, what did I ever do to you? Why are you everywhere? Now, of course, I was just, you know, everybody would see him everywhere, but it felt personal. Uh, so um, I wanted to, um, you know, I wanted the the stork to be a harbinger, maybe not necessarily of doom. Uh, but, you know, it's the beginning of things are starting to get weird. Um, they, we have we're starting to get out of Kansas and getting a little closer to Oz. Uh, so, uh, plus the stork has, um, um, there, there are different versions of mythology that, uh, in ancient Egyptian mythology, the stork or a similar looking bird would, would carry the soul of the dead, um, on flights around the world and bring it back to, uh, to relatives still alive. So there's a hint that this stork might be carrying Will's soul, um, or at least, um, You know, Faye has that thought, uh, especially since there was uh, a bird, similar looking bird when she was spreading Will's ashes in the ocean. Uh, So it's sort of a friend, uh, sort of a harbinger.
1: Um, Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that, actually, because I said something about Faye being pregnant. But she actually lost that child after she married Hagen, which was another issue between them was that she couldn't have kids or she had not succeeded in having kids by the time they realized that they needed to go separate ways. Um, yeah, no, I had thought also, I think maybe in some traditions, historic is a symbol of life as well. But in any case, it's, it's just a lovely image that, that shows up in this kind of literary way. Um, so I wanted to ask what it meant for you. Uh, so Fay then learns about two lighthouses in the area. Uh, and this is where we're starting to get, you know, seriously into the, we're getting past the first stage of the plot and, and moving into the main story. So one is on Hunting Island, and another more mysterious uh, lighthouse that no longer operates is located on a private island, which co- the locals call Bride Island and everyone else calls Seaport Island. And so Ty takes Faye out, Faye out to the lighthouses by boat, um, which is where she learns the difference between day marks and night marks. So I thought, since I your title, I'd ask you to explain it before we get further into the story.
0: Oh, sure. The, the day mark is the lighthouse's paint job. Um, and, uh, historically every lighthouse in an area would have a different day mark, a different paint job. And that was used for navigation by day. If you saw the, the black and white diamond lighthouse, you would know you were at a certain part of North Carolina and the stripes at a, at 50 would be 50 miles down. So, um, that was just for navigation and, uh, also, so at night you can't see the paint job, obviously. So lighthouses would flash their lights in different patterns, and the captain of a ship would know that, uh, like a five-second flash, meant you were at this part of the coast, and a, a ten-second flash would be a different part of the coast. Um, and so, yeah, both both different forms of navigation. Uh, but the night mark becomes symbolic in the book of of heartbeat, of soul. Um, the the uh, the nightmark of the lighthouse is, is the lighthouse's soul, uh, the pattern of its light. And uh, um, Faye looks at people as having a nightmark as well, as a, a light within them. And you can, you can tell people from other people by, by the light within them. It's a great
1: way of thinking about it, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, so Faye starts doing some research on Bright Island because she's, she's drawn uh, in ways she can't explain. Um, by the lighthouse there. And she goes to the Buford Historical Society and sees a painting um, that especially appeals to her and pulls her in uh, of a lighthouse and a woman standing at the end of the pier. And this um, this painting then leads her to Father Pat Cahill, uh, who in turn shows her photographs of the lighthouse keeper, who turns out to look just like Will. And so... Um, Tell us about this part of the story. What happens next and who the woman is. I mean, this is where we start to hook into the story that drew, drew you to this novel in the first place.
0: Right. So, uh um I, most people have gotten the the internet forwarder have seen seen the article going around of celebrities, uh, historical people who look like celebrities. Uh, so, like a certain president looks, like, you know, from two hundred years ago looks like Alec Baldwin or something like that. So people have doppelganger dangers, historical figures um, who look just like modern people, and that's sort of always stuck with me. It's like, Do I have one? Somebody from two hundred years ago looks just like me. Uh, so, um, you know, I had the idea that. What will really cement Faye's fascination with this lighthouse is learning that the um, the man who was the keeper of the lighthouse, the Bright Island Light, in uh, the early nineteen twenties uh, looked just like her late husband Will, um, and this fascinates her and and draws her deeper into the mystery and. and creates an obsession. Um, You know, who is he? Is he a relative? Is he a a prior incarnation of her husband? She doesn't, she doesn't know, but she desperately wants to know. And I, I could, I could sympathize. I, you know, I had a breakup with a boyfriend years ago and there's a guy in town who looks just like him. And I would run him, run into him at places and it was, it was like, I became fascinated with who is this guy who looks just like my ex boyfriend. Um, So I can, I can see that that would, I can believe that, that seeing somebody who looks like uh, her late husband would, would really get uh, its claws into her and she wouldn't be able to think about much else, um, especially as she's, she's going through this fresh mourning period. And uh, uh, while I was in South Carolina researching, I saw somebody painting on uh, plein air out in the open and, and just sort of stayed with me. It's like, well, that would be a cool character to have in a book. Um, it's it's good to have a mentor figure, someone older and wiser. And I'm Catholic, and I like older. Uh, I like hanging out with priests and talking to them. So we have a retired priest in in uh, Buford who's uh, painting in his in uh, his retirement, and uh, there are hints that he knows more about this whole situation than he's telling. But as he's a priest, he can't tell everything. He's he's under obligation to keep some secrets. Um, so uh, Faye and Pat um, sort of bond. And uh, she ends up giving him her confession, not of sin, but of sorrow. And uh, eventually, uh, he helps her get out to the lighthouse, um, and uh, which leads to her traveling back in time to 1921.
1: Right. And uh, so in 1921, she... Um, she runs into the, the lighthouse keeper, who's a man named Carrick Morgan. And tell us about him as a person. At first, she thinks of him as being another Will, but she gradually realizes that he's he's his own person.
0: Yes, he. Um, when I think about the past, the even even the recent past. Now, you know, my grandparents were alive in the in the nineteen twenties, so it's it may. Feel ancient, but it really is just three generations ago for for me, anyway. Um, but sometimes it just astonishes me how anybody survived that time. There was there were cars, but no rules of the road, no stop signs or no stoplights, and people died in car accidents constantly. Um, and no antibiotics, so it just amazes me uh, that anybody survived that time. So you have to wonder what kind of person who goes through all those uh, uh all those tragedies uh what they would be like. Um so Carrick is a very resilient resilient guy. He's he's older than Will would have been, so he's in his mid 30s. A lot of men came back from uh World War 1 and then did get uh jobs working as lighthouse keepers. As Carrick says in the in the book, they want uh they'd rather have seamen than than landmen because um, you know, a sailor knows that if the the light goes out on the lighthouse at night, then somebody might die. Whereas somebody who's lived all their life on the land doesn't realize how serious it is. Um, so he's he's an old sailor. He's seen the world. He's been around the world a couple times. Um, he's open-minded, broad-minded, but also a man of deep faith. The lighthouse is, is symbolic in the Bible. You, there's mention of lighthouses in the Bible and a light on a hill um, as, as uh, a symbol for wisdom and, and the path you should take and, and God. Um, so he's a deeply religious man, as a lot of Lighthouse families were. Uh, they felt like they were doing doing God's work by protecting people at sea. Uh, so he's he's a good guy who's who survived a lot of loss just like Faye.
1: And Faye is now living in the body of a young woman, Faith Morgan, uh, who is um, supposedly Carrick's daughter. And we we do find out more about her. I don't know how much you want to tell us about her past, but it's um, there are a number of interesting things about that. I mean, she Faye is now much younger and in the body of Faith Morgan, so there's a much greater age difference between Faith and Carrick than there is in reality, and she's um, hiding out basically.
0: Uh, yes, I I. The number one reason I wouldn't want to live in the past is because how awful the past was to women, Um, especially uh, especially people who didn't have privilege. um, You know, the poor, uneducated, uh, you know, people who had just come, you know, 1920s. There were a lot of people who had, uh, you know, survived slavery in the Civil War. So it was it was not a great time to be a woman in in, uh, the early 20th century. Um, But even even the wealthy, privileged women were still treated like property. Um, So we have a character of uh, faith who um, was, you know, needed to marry somebody wealthy who who treated her very poorly. um, And she ran away from him and has now uh, is, you know, seeking sanctuary on this island, which is a fantasy of mine. You know, I just want to get away from the Internet, but but she uh, wants to get away from from a situation where she knows eventually is going to kill her, either kill her spirit um, or kill her physically. She's she's married to a dangerous man and uh, needs to get away from him. Uh, So she she runs away uh, and um, goes to the island. And that's when uh, uh, our Faye becomes Faith um, shortly after. Faith gets to the island. Um, she's swept out to sea, and then uh, Faye enters her body and becomes her. Um, so it's it, there's a joke in the in the book about quantum leap. So it's a sort of a quantum leap scenario. Um, so we have Faye's mind and, and Faith's body trying to blend in and not not give away that she's not who she everyone thinks she is.
1: And Faith is actually the woman in the painting that Father Pat was was creating, right?
0: Right. Yes. Um, because yeah. there is a legend
1: associated with her,
0: right? So the uh, like Florence Martis in Savannah—that's all kinds of local legends in every in every southern town. Every coastal town has some some local character who becomes a ghost story or a legend. Um, we have ours in, in Lexington, Kentucky. Uh, quite a few of them. So, yeah. Every, I'm sure a lot of northern towns too, but especially the south tends to be haunted. Um, so we have uh, a woman who uh, the story of a woman who uh, died in 1921, um, fell off the pier into the water and was swept away. And now she's she's uh, a ghost story. Parents tell their kids to say, be safe in the water. The water's choppy. Um, you can get swept out to sea. You can drown. So she's she's a warning. Uh, but we find out there's much more to her her death than we realize.
1: And, in fact, the legend keeps changing as Faith goes back and forth in time right. because she, she's altering it. And it's never underlined in a crude way, but you start to notice as you're reading through that, that the legend is, is shifting as, as yes. things go along, which is a really nice touch, I thought. Um, so so life in 1921 uh, is no surprise. It's uh, a bit challenging for Faith, Um I have to give her credit that she didn't spend all her time whining about her iPhone not working as <laughs> 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 so many characters do in other books. <laughs> but still, it's not an easy thing. You've mentioned some of the problems, but what does she have to learn in order to to cope with uh, living suddenly in her grandparents' world? Uh,
0: there's there's a lot she has to deal with. And and I try to put myself into her shoes. And the, the basics are food and water and shelter. Uh, so, had to think about food is going to be very different in the 1920s. If you're living on an Island, you're going to have preserves and stuff that's kind of disgustingly chemically preserved in cans, but also uh, you would have, uh, because food is delivered to the lighthouses and uh, that was kind of the beginning of of a lot of canned foods. Um, But also they'll have a garden that you have to deal with on a daily basis, weeding and whatnot. If you want, um, if you want peach pie in fall, you've got to make sure your, your trees are, are pruned in the spring. I mean, you have to, uh, if you want you know, corn in September, you've got to plant it in March. So you have to do a lot of meal planning very, very early. And if you, if you don't, you're going to starve. Uh, so you know, we're all so spoiled by just getting to go to the grocery store. Not that I'm complaining about that. I don't have a garden. I don't particularly want one, but my grandparents had one, uh, that they, that was a lot of work and they worked on it every single day. Um, onions and tomatoes and that sort of thing. So she has to, she has to do weeding, um, which is backbreaking work, especially for someone who, who doesn't do a lot of manual labor in a regular life. Um, she has to, uh, deal with heat. It's, it's, uh, You know, as I was thinking about the clothes that somebody would wear in 19, a woman would wear in 1920, and even in the height of summer in South Carolina, you would still be wearing long sleeves. You know, Faye has this realization of like, oh, it's sunblock. I have to be covered from head to toe, not out of, you know, primness or propriety or modesty if I will get a sunburn if I do not have my arms covered. And there's no sunblock in this time, and, and you can get... You know, a horrible sunburn if you if you don't cover yourself and put on a hat. Um, so, you know, thinking about things in, in the in the mind of, of someone from 1921 instead of from my my 2017 mind. Um, so, yeah, food, water, uh, water um, was rainwater. Uh, coastal lighthouse keepers in in that time had um, rain barrels where they collected rain, and that was their fresh water source mostly and they had to put chlorine drops in it, so their drinking water tasted like chlorine, um, which is not very pleasant drinking swimming pool water, but it was better than the alternative, getting dysentery or that sort of thing. so it's a lot of work
1: a lot of work. yeah, no, I mean its, it's it doesn't seem i mean, I guess it's almost a hundred years ago now, but even so. I mean, to realize that everything was so much more work. I mean, there were no vacuum cleaners, no washing machines. I mean, just doing basic things to clean. And, I mean, it was a a constant slog.
0: Yeah, a book I read, a historic um, uh, book about that time period, said that the average amount of housework a woman did every week in the 1910s, 1920s, was 60 hours of housework. So... You couldn't have women working jobs out in in the world because their full time and a half job was just keeping the house from falling down. And it wasn't housework the way we do housework where we wipe off the counters with, uh, you know, just a a wet rag or whatever just to make them shiny. It was you have to clean the ashes off the ceiling lights or they'll catch on fire and burn the house down. You know, it was uh, we have to beat the rugs because there's bugs in them, you know, and the bugs will breed and bite us if we don't beat the rugs every couple of days to get them out. So it was like life and death housework. Not, you know, not just we want our houses to look nice, it was we want our houses to not kill us. Uh, so everything, the stakes were much higher back then too.
1: Right. So in your story, the person, I mean, Faye does an enormous amount of it uh, as well. As She gets... Uh, f- you know, she gets accustomed to living there. But the person who's mostly responsible for doing this is another important character in the book, Dolly. Oh,
0: uh, yes, I love Dolly. I think she was my favorite one to write. Um, so tell us about Dolly, because she
1: turns out to—I mean, I don't know that you want to say what the connections are, <laughs> but she turns to uh, she turns out to have present-day con- connections as well.
0: Uh, yeah. So we have uh, a lot of lighthouse keepers had big families and. Um, the lighthouse bureau liked to have lighthouse keepers who had big families because everybody worked. Uh, so the more more people in the family uh, at the lighthouse, the more backup help you had if the lighthouse keeper fell and broke his leg, which was common that that sort of thing happened when you're carrying, you know, oil drums up a hundred stairs five times a day. Um, you know, lighthouse keepers got hurt and they got sick and their wife or their kids would have to take over. But Carrick is, is a single guy, so he needs help. Uh, so he has Dolly, his housekeeper, who, um, is a, a black teenager. Um, and she is the daughter of uh, a fisherman who lives on, on one of the, the sea islands out there, which was very common in the time. Um, I read about the, the coastal uh, area was all black people on the islands and the only white people were the lighthouse keeper families. That's it in that time. Uh, so if, if it, I, I had this moment where I was like, well, you've got to have – it's South Carolina. She's probably going to be black, but um, – She's also this incredibly talented sort of Martha Stewart type housekeeper. Um, She can do anything. She uh, can make her own clothes. Um, She's a seamstress. She's an interior decorator. Uh, So she was turned into this uh, teenage Martha Stewart, which I have a cousin who's like that um, and always impressed and amazed me. Uh, So it was like the the art of housekeeping. So it's not this – I have Dolly. She's not – housekeeping is not drudgery to her. She's turned it into this high art um, because 17 year olds in 1920s could do a lot of that stuff that, that are, are lost skills now sewing um, and cooking without recipes, that sort of thing. Um, you know, she, she had uh, she had a lot of skills that are, are lost to most teenagers now who, who don't have to do that sort of stuff. So it was a lot of fun to, uh, to uh, uh, show um, basically, to show up, Faye's like, "Faye, you are useless. You 2015 woman, you are useless in 1921. You don't even know how to bake a pie uh, in an oven that doesn't have all the the buttons and the gauges on it that you're used to." Uh, so this teenage girl is going to show you how it's done. And she has a disability; she can't hear. Right, she's deaf, um, and um, I, that was that was just something that that occurred to me, you know, this is a warning of how tough life is in 1921 in 19, the early 20th century. If a baby gets a fever, you're going to be very lucky if the baby lives. And if the baby does live, there's a good chance that, um, the child will end up with health problems. Um, so when I was looking up Helen Keller, they said, Helen Keller, um, with deaf and blind and i think i think one of the theories cuz they didn't know they didn't you know they didn't have modern medicine they called it a brain fever she had a brain fever uh she had scarlet fever which they don't think that's what it was anymore um, so it it it's completely um if you go back to 1921 you're going to see a lot more amputees you would see a lot more people with diseases um, you would see a lot more uh uh blind people or deaf people because you know they uh without antibiotics the you know a a, a cold could do terrible things to you but it's it's much more common then so everybody just sort of treats her like it's normal
1: so um so this brings me to another question which is what kinds of research did you have to do for this novel and do you have time to fit in research when you're writing four books a year that's a lot
0: yeah. <laughs> um I, I can't remember which – I, I want to say it was Stephen King who said research as you go, and that way um, you're only researching what you need to know. Because if you want to just sit down and read books about the 1920s and lighthouses in the United States, that you could spend 10 years reading every published book about how lighthouses worked and work and what the 1920s in America was like. There's I found – uh, several books just on on the year 1927 alone. Uh, so um, instead of instead of just sitting down and reading. Um, I started writing the story, and when I got to the past that I would look stuff up. It was like, okay, so we know in 1921 there was electricity, but was there electricity on these coastal islands? Not really, but what was there? So a lot of lighthouses were gas-powered. Well, a lot of houses were gas-powered still in the 1920s, so we have a house that's run on gas instead of run on electricity, so that's that's much more plausible. And I looked up some of the fun, uh, i.e. horrific accidents that, that having um, – Uh, a gas powered lighthouse, um, happened in the past and gas in the house. Like you have to clean, you have to clean your lamp shades very carefully because then, you know, if you have too much soot on them, they could catch on fire. So little things like that. Um, so yeah, I just researched as I went, but I also, I went to Beaufort, South Carolina. I climbed the hunting Island lighthouse. I went to every, anytime I was anywhere within 50 miles of a lighthouse, I would drive there and, um, walk around the lighthouse i went to i was living in oregon at the time so i went to a bunch of um lighthouses on the uh in the pacific northwest which are very different sorts of lighthouses than in the in the south but um you know collecting their stories uh what their furniture in their houses look like and uh what the fresnel lenses look like it was a lot of fun so a lot of it was hands-on research but a lot of it was just reading as i went
1: yeah, I think that probably helps with the other problem with hi- historical fiction in particular. There's a tendency to information dump. Uh, if, if you've done all this research, you want to put it all in the story and it doesn't
0: right. necessarily belong there. Exactly. It, it, can, it can really bog it down. So um, so what would you like readers
1: to take away from The Nightmark?
0: Well, it's a, it's a story of second chances and a story of hope, um, ultimately. Um, the, the idea that someone out there loves us. Is taking care of us and is little by little mending all the heartaches, uh, which is which is a very religious idea. But I'm a religious person, and, and I would like to think that ultimately we will all get our chance to have our uh, the holes um, in in our uh, in our life um, mended by someone who's taking care of us and sees the grand scheme of things. Um, so it's it's as Father Pat says, faith sort of a modern female Job who's lost everything. And by the end, she she gets it all back because I'm ultimately an optimist. Um, But in a different way, a way she didn't expect in a way that requires her to be brave and courageous and make some hard choices, uh, which we all have to do if we want to, uh, if we want to achieve happiness, we have to be brave because it's, it can be very scary going after it. But it's a story of hope uh, and the the fundamental decency of uh, the people out there who are, who are keeping watch over us like lighthouse keepers.
1: That's lovely. It's a lovely message. Um, so uh, this book has just come out, but uh, because you have to eat, I assume you're working
0: <laughs> on something else already? Or every perhaps, day, working on something every day. <laughs> or perhaps
1: even something since. I mean, this has been in production for a while, I assume.
0: What are so, you working on now? Um, well, right now I'm working on – um, it's a book that that's tentatively, tentatively titled The Lucky Ones. It'll be set on the Oregon coast um, because that's close to where I used to live. And it's a, it's a nice spooky Gothic sort of setting. It's very cloudy and and, um, dramatic out on the Oregon coast, uh, very cold water. So it's another, it's another water book. I, uh, I wanted to write something. I I call it V.C. Andrews and Madeline Lingle had a book baby that grew up and moved to the Oregon coast. So that'll be out next February. Um, a, A young woman who was in a, uh, an unusual foster family when she was a child and has not seen them in about 13 or 14 years gets invited back to this, this unusual foster family. And uh, when the patriarch of the family is dying, she wants, they want to see her again before he passes away. And she returns and discovers a lot of secrets about her time there and about the other children in the family. Um, The, the dark secrets behind why they're such wonderful people. Um, So it's a, it's, it's very gothic um, and has been a lot of fun to write, so I'm doing uh, edits on that right now. Uh, so that should be out in February of next year. And then I have a very naughty book coming out in July because I, I will never get completely away from my erotic romance uh, roots. It's called The Red. Um, so that comes out this year, and The Lucky Ones comes out next year.
1: That's great. Well,
0: I wish you the best of luck, and thank you so thank
1: much. Thank you very much for sharing your time with us today. I really appreciated talking with you.
0: I had a great time. Thanks for having me. And I hope everyone goes out and reads The Nightmark.
1: Yes, absolutely. Go and buy it. (laughs) And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I'm CP Leslie. And today I've been speaking with Tiffany Rice about The Nightmark. You can find out more about her at www.tiffanyrice.com. Like us on Facebook, search for NB Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter at Histfic. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. You can also find out more about me, my website, and my books at blog.cplesley.com, where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. Goodbye until my next conversation about new books in historical fiction.